Hi there, and welcome to another Alliance Academy podcast brought to you by Alliance Advisors. I'm Brendan Henry, the Senior Vice President for Asia Pacific Operations here at Alliance. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Talia Williams, who is currently a non-executive director at Melbourne Airport and an independent advisor on investment stewardship, ESG and sustainable investment. Previously, she was head of investment stewardship at a Victorian Funds Management Corporation. And also prior to this, Talia developed and led Unisipper's approach to responsible investment for over 11 years. Continuing our look at the AGM season here in Australia, we look at some of the key focus areas during the AGM season, predominantly from an asset owner's perspective, including remuneration, culture and activism, and how issuers can best navigate any issues which occur, drawing on Talia's invaluable experience. Hi Talia, thanks for joining us. Thanks Brendan, it's terrific to be here with you this morning talking about some what I hope are really interesting topics. Now, I had the pleasure of working with you, albeit very briefly. So I understand some of your background as an asset owner and now as a non-executive director at Melbourne Airport. So we're hoping to draw on some of those experiences. What we're looking at today is, you know, the current we're currently in the middle of AGM season here in Australia. There has been a few, you know, remuneration strikes, but I think we're really getting into the the busy period and we'll see what trends are going to come out in the next few weeks. Obviously, remuneration from and this year perspective is always, you know, a really important resolution to pass for issuers. They put a lot of work into the remuneration report. This year, we're obviously coming on the back of a period where we've just left COVID, COVID period, where I suppose a lot of remuneration outcomes weren't vesting, you know, some companies, especially when they were, I suppose, facing customers who weren't able to access, you know, venues or shopping centers, etc. A lot of those companies had trouble meeting those targets, whereas now, we're on the back of an inflationary period. There is a thought that some companies may be looking to uh, reward executives who haven't been able to be rewarded over the last few years. When you're wearing your hat as an asset owner, as you were previously, retention of key executives, how important do you feel that is? Is it important that they are, you know, when we been through a period that we have been where perhaps, you know, those LTIs and SDIs have invested. How important is that retention of those key executives when it comes to a point now where, where things have shifted slightly? Look, I mean, that's a really good question, Brendan, and I think there are some complexities to it because obviously retention is incredibly important and companies do want to hold on to their best talent and likewise shareholders and shareholders' interests for companies to have, you know, be able to retain key key executives and staff, and that that then is inextricably related to remuneration. But at the same time, I firmly believe, and I, you know, I can't speak, you know, for everyone, but I believe everyone is actually replaceable as well. And so companies do do need to strike a balance. Yes, they do need to focus on retention, but at the end of the day, they also need to be building a talent pipeline. So remuneration is one lever that they can pull, but they also need to make sure that they've got the bench strength beneath the CEO and have a robust succession planning approach in place as well because REM is important, but you can't just rely on remuneration. And we've also got to keep in mind the broader backdrop. So yes, it has been challenging for executives, but they have still been very well remunerated as compared to, you know, the wider community, which has really, really struggled. So it's sort of, I guess, striking a balance. And there's I, I don't think there's any one size it's all answer for it. And I think, you know, COVID provided an opportunity to review and take stock of many things, and that includes executive remuneration. And what we also saw through COVID was, you know, a really clear highlighting of the disparity in wealth across society. 
and the need for a socially inclusive approach and companies, as you said, to really clearly scrutinise how companies responded. And while executive remuneration was under intense scrutiny over the past couple of years, I think it's unlikely to lessen. I think investors will still be very acutely focused on REM, particularly given that there can be, you know, a temptation to revert to norm. And what does, you know, again, back to a former asset owner had, how does a company communicate to you that, you know, that it is appropriate if they are rewarding executives, especially coming back off a period where perhaps, you know, things outside of their control, like COVID, LTIs and SD, those measures couldn't be met? I suppose a lot of, for a lot of those companies, there is the, the other argument is during those periods that the share price may have come back a bit. So then I suppose if, you know, if TSR is a measure that should be more easily achievable once you come out of those periods. But, you know, how does a company communicate to you or, you know, any asset owner that the rewards or, you know, any changes to structure, be it a length of service sort of award as opposed to something that is a, a financial measure or, or hurdle? Yeah. How do they communicate to you that that's appropriate especially in the context of, you know, those executives who they feel they really need to keep a hold of. I won't go into the mechanics of different restructures, yeah. yeah. but what, what I will emphasise, so I'd sort of call the, the mechanics of it the science part of remuneration. Equally important is the art. So, you know, REM is part art, part science. And part of that art is bringing your shareholders along with you. And it's absolutely fundamental to engage with shareholders about what you're doing and, you know, asset owners and asset managers appreciate that companies and directors are often, you know, they are incredibly busy people. So there are obviously limits to the level of engagement that they can undertake. But to the extent that they can, broad and deep engagement is critical. So, and also early. So don't just come and engage with your asset owners and your fund managers immediately prior to the AGM. Start early in the piece where you're you're actually communicating what you're thinking about REM moving forward, engage on some of the potential changes you're seeking to make so that you can bring people with you and also get their advice. And investors, you know, they employ really clever people. They look at a lot of companies and they can be a free source of consulting advice for companies. And they can say, look, we've seen this work well at a particular company. This is what we don't like. And they can proactively provide information which can feed into the the development and design of a particular REM structure. And it also ensures that there aren't any surprises right before the AGM when the chairman's doing a pre-AGM roadshow. So I think it's really critical to do early engagement, broad engagement, to genuinely look at the feedback that's being received, and then also to be really transparent in disclosures. And a key challenge with REM reports is that they can often be completely impenetrable and completely appreciate that there are legal requirements that need to be complied with when drafting a REM report, but that shouldn't come at the expense of being transparent and being able to coherently explain how the remuneration structure works. And it's important for companies to also recognise that if if their REM report is poorly written or not as transparent as it could be, that could lead to a vote against the REM report. So if things aren't easily understood and communicated, investors can err on the side of caution and say, look, we're actually not comfortable with the structure. So it's really it's really important to think about how you're communicating it, how you're drafting it, and to make sure the key messages are clear and that you're being as transparent as possible. And investors ultimately appreciate that executives are well-paid. They expect that they're well-paid. And the critical thing is to then demonstrate that 
the incentive arrangements in particular are aligned with the shareholder experience. And what the key thing investors don't want to see is a CEO or other executives being rewarded for poor performance. That's great advice. That's, that's really important that companies hear that from, from that sort of perspective. When, as we're in AGM season at the minute, you know, you expect companies where at a certain point in time, you know, proxy advice, you know, is being issued. Should, you know, and obviously from an asset owner's or, you know, an asset manager's perspective, that forms one piece of the decision-making process. How important is that response, you know, to an asset owner, asset manager, you know, when it comes to a negative recommendation, say on remuneration, but equally it could be on a director election or anything like that. Obviously, it forms one piece of the input, but how important a piece and how important is that, is that response, you know, on the back of it, being aware of it and, and tackling those issues that are raised? Yeah, look, I think, you know, we've seen proxy advisors in the spotlight on and off over the years, and some companies will criticise the the system saying proxy advisors hold too much power. I completely disagree. And having, you know, been a user of their research, you know, I can attest to the way in which I've used that research and advice. And companies need to be really, really clear that proxy advisors provide advice and they provide research. No one is compelled to rely on it or to execute in accordance with it. And as you pointed out, it's absolutely one input into the process. And through time, you know, we've seen investors become much more sophisticated in their approaches. They've built bigger teams. They have really expert teams who are really deeply interrogating the resolutions before them. Because in my experience, no one takes voting against a company endorsed or a management endorsed recommendation lightly. People do not do it lightly. And so proxy voting research is considered. But other inputs include engagement with the company, the documentation and the the reporting by the company. It will include engaging, if you're an asset owner, you'll engage with your fund managers on what their thoughts and their experiences are. You'll look at external broker research. You'll look at media reports. You'll look at as much information as you can get your hands on, including the proxy voting advice. And proxy voting advisors play a really, really important role because asset owners are literally voting on thousands of resolutions each year. They can't possibly get across every single resolution. And what proxy voting advice does is it essentially provides a scan of what the issues are and it can elevate issues where there are potential concerns. And yes, the proxy voting advisor may then recommend voting against, but what that does is actually flags an area for deeper investigation and consideration by an asset owner. And in my experience, I've received proxy voting advice where an advisor has recommended voting against a particular resolution and I've made the decision to actually vote in support of that resolution. So I've reviewed the advice and thought actually, for whatever reason, I don't agree and I think it's appropriate to vote for. And conversely, I've received proxy voting advice where the recommendation has to been, has been to vote for a particular resolution and I've taken a different opinion. So I think to your point, it's an input, but it's not the only input, but it is, you know, an important source of information. Yeah, um, just, you know, on, on the back of a negative recommendation, what sort of things would you recommend a company do to address those specific concerns that are raised? Or there are yeah. things that are raised that do need to be addressed, but it obviously goes back, you know, engagement obviously needs to start early and hopefully these issues have already been discussed. Yeah. But again, you know, they've been brought up and highlighted by a report 
So they do need, again, addressed. What sort of things do you think companies can do to be proactive in that space? Look, I think the first thing is to actually reflect on what the proxy advisor is saying. And I think there can be a tendency to become quite adversarial and want to argue the point. And I think, you know, the first fundamental thing to do is really reflect on what they're saying and see if anything can be taken from that. But, you know, that that doesn't solve the problem of the fact that you've got a vote coming up. So what I would then recommend is that the company, to the extent they can, seek to engage with the proxy advisors. And that can be challenging because different advisors have different approaches to how they engage throughout the year. So with, say, an Ownership Matters or Axie, they can actually, the company can go on request to make a meeting to do a briefing on what the arrangements are and why to try and sort of ventilate key information that they think might have been missed. The company can reach out to individual shareholders. So I, I would recommend that they really analyse their register, see who their largest owners are and reach out directly to those asset owners and those asset managers and request a meeting or send a detailed briefing note regarding what the nature of the advice has been and why the company believes it appropriate to actually support a particular resolution and again in in running that engagement or in preparing those communications I really strongly advise that companies I think respectfully acknowledge the proxy voting advice that there will always you know from time to time be gray areas where there there might be uh, disagreement and then put their case to the investors I guess in a gracious and courteous manner I think sometimes companies can take a recommendation to vote against personally. It's not personal. It's based on the information before the investors and the advisors. And so it's then really incumbent upon a company to be transparent and to ventilate the key information that it wants people to understand and take into account. So important in order to be able to even explain, you know, a different perspective that then obviously, you know, a proxy advisor can look at things, the information that's available to them, but whatever, you know, given that greater colour. You know, I've seen in the past how, how important that is to investors to understand both sides of an argument, an argument as such, or difference in opinions, let's say. So moving on slightly, you know, we talked briefly about that response to proxy advisors. And obviously, one of the things that I, I think is has been covered in the media recently is around, and again, it will follow through to proxy advice in those reports, is there'll be some directors under pressure this year because of previous scandals at some companies, particularly around the, the casino operators, but going all the way back to, I suppose, even the, the Bank and Royal Commission through to, you know, the events that impacted um, Duke and Gorge, and that was obviously Rio. Culture is a huge topic of conversation around how these, I suppose, these events can happen at issuers. And it seems there's a certain amount of transience of culture, it can, and it can be addressed through a change of executive leadership, which, you know, really surprises me. I, I was recently attended the AXI conference and obviously Rio CBA talked about that uh, cultural. They, I suppose there's a certain amount of an element when you see these things in paper, the obvious, I suppose, reaction is culture is broken, but culture doesn't isn't really ever broken. It needs adjusted, yes, but either that happens from a change to executive leadership, either wholesale from externally or in CBA and Rio, it was actually internally. Um, and there seems to have been profound changes at both of those companies. But should it be so transient? And again, I think I'm going to refer actually to your non-executive director role here. Should it be so transient from one executive team to the next? Should the should the board of directors not be accountable? And that, you know, this leads into the AGM season where some of these directors will be standing for election and you know, rightly or wrongly, being held accountable for the issues at companies that they've been at. 
should the board not be the corporate memory and understand the you know the executive that they're appointing into those roles and what fits the culture of that company and sh- should there be that shift such a significant shift between one executive team to the next Look, I'll address that last part of the question first around that that big shift or is it possible for there to be such a big shift between one executive team and the next and, you know, those issues around transients. And I was also at that AXE conference that you attended, Brendan, and like you, I was sort of really deeply reflecting on, on the same things that you have. And I'm just not too sure if it can be that transient. And I guess one thing about corporate culture is it's it's really hard to pin down. And I saw a quote somewhere once that it's a little bit like mist. It, it, you know it's there, but it's hard to pin down. And and it's also something that sort of runs very deep within a company because it's, it's pervasive, it can be enduring, and it's, it's a shared kind of collective group phenom- phenomenon, I guess. And it's really, you know, it's not only in a company what people do, but it's how they do it and why they do it and all of those things I don't think can be put together quickly and I don't necessarily think they can be dismantled quickly but what I think can happen is I saw another really good quote somewhere and I can't recall who it was so unfortunately I can't accurately attribute it but it's about the fact that you know the seeds of failure stem from very deep with inside a company you know at its values and it at its core, its culture. And those seeds can sometimes lie dormant for years for a very, very long time. But what we do know is that when we see huge issues go wrong, they do fundamentally come down to culture. And I don't think that culture can be created quickly. And I don't think it can necessarily be destroyed quickly, but things can chip away at it. And the challenge for a board, and I I won't speak specifically in relation to any roles I had, but the challenge for a board is that how do you really get inside and see what's happening on the floor of a company and and get a feel for that culture? And because directors aren't necessarily on the floor seeing and hearing conversations and getting a sense of the vibe, but that's what they've really got to try and aspire to do. And sometimes it's really simple things that can bring things to life. And an example for me, and I will speak specifically as, as you mentioned, I'm on the board of Melbourne Airport and I had to duck out of the boardroom to use facilities and they were not the facilities near the boardroom they were located in a different part of the floor where I had to walk through the floor space and because I'm quite a new director people don't know who I am so they didn't adjust their behavior when I was around and I was just amazed by the buzz on the floor it was positive it was vibrant people were sitting at their desk collaborating there was a really, really positive energy on the floor. And I would never have gotten a feel for that, except for the fact that I needed to walk through it to to get to the facilities. And so it's about sort of drawing inferences and conclusions from what you're seeing and experiencing. And that was a really spontaneous experience for me. So it wasn't sort of a scheduled tour that I was going to be walking through the floor so people had to be at their desks looking happy. It was just they were naturally there (laughs) doing it. Likewise, you know, I've been exposed to lots of different companies. I'm currently doing some advisory work. So again, I get exposure to different companies in that way. And likewise, I've been struck by the the culture on the floor and other organisations where you kind of feel dead inside. And so I'm not there as a director. I'm there as an advisor. But you do think, oh, this feels really a little bit hollow, a little bit empty and a sense of kind of, yeah, I guess it's just that emptiness and that lack of connectedness. And if I was a director... I would be worried about that. But then it's a question of whether those directors 
get a sense of that. So I think the really critical things with culture are that in some ways you do need to rely on your executive team, but directors also need to try and triangulate as much information and as much data as they can. And it's not just quantifiable data, but it's about seeking divergent views, looking at difficult feedback, welcoming that different difficult feedback from a whole range of different stakeholders rather than sort of trying to argue the company's position or argue why it does have good culture, but really deeply listen. And I think listening is a really critical leadership trait. And it's also about being open to to difficult or challenging feedback without wanting to then argue a different position. So I think it's really just taking it on board reflecting on it, getting feedback from a really diverse range of stakeholders. And one other thing I would say is that culture can sometimes, you know, sometimes it's delegated to the the people in culture department. Now that's that's not the right approach. Culture, it comes from the top, but then it needs to sort of become all pervasive and the, the people in culture department can assist with it, but it's not for them to set the culture. They need to be their one tool among many. There's an organisational psychologist that most people will have heard of, Adam Grant, and he he's written you know a lot about culture. And I think he's he's made a really interesting comment in that a lot of companies focus on cultural fit, and that's actually not the right thing to be doing because you just attract more people like yourself. You actually want to be mm-hmm. focused cultural contribution so hiring people who bring the values and culture that you esteem to have within your organization so it shouldn't be a static thing it should be something that's continually developed and bolstered and reinforced through time and and it does need to be an active process yeah i think that that was reflective at axi paul sullivan from anz and karen wood from south 32 talked about similar challenges that they had and again I suppose the question is, how does the board communicate that to investors? And I think going back to that question, when there is these feelings, we see changes in executives fairly regularly get held accountable for it. But is it appropriate to hold the board accountable if there has been these feelings that have gone on for so long and perhaps not asking the right questions? And obviously, <laughs> I'm not talking about you, Tally, here, but you know, it's surely there's that accountability it has to be where the accountability for culture sits. You know, executives, as you say, when the board is looking to bring in people to contribute to the culture, they should be looking, first of all, at the values that the company holds and then looking to either promote from within or externally, depending on what the need is. But then that accountability must then sit for the management of the management of that idea of culture, I think. Does that sit and therefore does the accountability sit with directors? I think it's on a case by case. So <laughs> quick answer is probably yes, but then I think it just really does depend on the issues at hand. And for example, we saw at Rio Tinto with the Chicane Gorge disaster that there was accountability at those very highest levels, which was appropriate. And I think it's also critical to reflect on when you have a corporate disaster occur, it's about looking into what led to that disaster occurring before the fact. And then it's also about assessing and analysing what happened after the fact, what actions did the board and management take after the issues came to light? And if we reflect on Rio, for example, after the news broke of the terrible things that happened, the board and the CEO were absent for a number of weeks. And so I was working in Acidona at the time leading the stewardship team at VFMC, and I reached out to immediately to discuss these issues and the chairman at the time wasn't available to speak to investors 
for two weeks and it was only after significant investor pressure that he made himself available to speak about the issues. And so that tells you a lot about culture of itself. If you compare that to another company in the resources sector, so BHP with its San Marco dam collapse, the CEO of BHP was literally on the ground in South America within 48 hours of that event occurring. So he was very clearly demonstrating personal care and accountability for what had happened. And he probably went there at quite significant personal risk. He potentially could have been arrested and summarily detained. I mean, who knows what could have happened, but he went and he took accountability. And so if you compare and contrast those two approaches, you you get some sense of culture, maybe not a full read on culture, but you've got to look at those those subtle messaging and interpret that to get a feel for culture and then accountability and then whether or not the board or executive need to be held further accountable, for example, by being removed from their positions or not. That's great, great insight. Um, lived experience, which is fantastic. I could obviously, I could speak about culture all day. It's fascinating to me. It's something that's really important to me and it's something that it's almost impossible to get a true and accurate read on if you're outside of the company. And so there are data points that investors can look to but it is really, really difficult. But in the wake of another, you know, corporate culture crisis at Commonwealth Bank, where Catherine Livingston was then appointed as the chairperson, you know, I th- she said it incredibly well and very, very simply. The key thing that we all have to ask ourselves is, is this right? I mean, if anyone's in any doubt, just ask yourself, is this the right thing to be doing? And if we all ask ourselves that, including executives, company directors and so on, that helps lead you in the right way. You know, it can be complicated, it can be difficult, but that fundamental question is a really, it's a, should be the North Star for us all. Absolutely. One last thing I do want to cover off, shareholder proposal, the climate side of AGM season, which, you know, doesn't impact every company, but is, yes, you know, not yet. For, not yet, <laughs> not yet. Obviously, say on climate is a, I suppose, a burgeoning idea in Australia anyway. I've worked over, you know, across Globally, Australia seems to be the early adopter, and obviously it is currently focused on the extractive industries, but whether there's contagion into other adjacent industries and then across the entire market, it's something that would be really interesting to see over the next few years. It will probably depend a lot on this AGM season, how those are, are tackled. What are your thoughts on say on climate? And again, you know, I, I think I've, I've asked this to both Philip and uh, Bryn, who we've spoken to recently, around the idea, you know, that sometimes uh, is spoken about. It can be used to deflect responsibility almost as a greenwashing exercise because it is an advisory vote, whereas, you know, a vote against a director is binding if that's where some investors want to hold accountability for these these matters at. Yeah, look, I, I tend to agree with what you've said and that the first thing we'll say is that Shareholder resolutions are now a really important part of our governance landscape. And even if a company doesn't agree with the premise of the resolutions, which often they don't, it's really important to look at those resolutions as a sign of what is coming through because civil society groups are very good at looking at what key issues and risks are and then elevating them. And a way they elevate them is via these shareholder resolutions. Now, as you've mentioned, you know, there are some arguments that it can be deflecting responsibility and lead to greenwashing and so on. And is it better to vote against a director rather than for a shareholder resolution? I think that when it comes to climate, investors need to be looking at all the tools available to them to drive action and accountability for climate risk management and economic decarbonisation. 
you know, we haven't really seen that many votes, if any, against directors on the basis of climate accountability. So I think that's really an area that asset managers do need to be looking at deeply. And in the meantime, I think shareholder resolutions provide, you know, they provide a perspective and it's a way for investors to signal to companies what's important to them. They are advisory votes. They are essentially a communication tool. And I've seen, you know, companies respond in a whole range of ways to shareholder resolutions. And as with engagement on remuneration, I think it's important that companies appreciate that there will be divergent views. They may need to agree to disagree with their shareholders and with the civil society groups. But what I would really deeply encourage is that they remain open to hearing another view and perspective and to really listen it, listen to what they're being asked to do and why and to not treat it as an adversarial process and often companies will find reasons to disagree with the shareholder resolutions just because they want to they don't want to agree whereas i would really encourage companies to look at those resolutions and see what they can proactively take from them and find a middle ground and use them as an opportunity to learn and do better and also just don't take these resolutions personally. I think they're, again, as with REM, if there's a vote against, it, it can also be a tendency potentially to take that vote as a personal vote. And with shareholder resolutions, as with REM, it's absolutely critical to engage, engage with the civil society groups, engage with your investors, reach out and listen and just be open to what that feedback is. And then it's also really important for companies to transparently tell their story and communicate what they are doing on climate. So don't just pull the shutters down. And also, I think, reflect on the fact that civil society groups are motivated by driving positive social and environmental outcomes. So there is positive motivation there. And there are also reasons why companies are being targeted. So if you are one of those companies being targeted, I really recommend that you listen to what what people are trying to convey to you and then demonstrate how you're taking action. Great advice. When you were an asset owner, did you actively engage with the NGOs and uh, like ACCR market forces? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's really important too. And in the investment world, it's really important to build relationships with a whole range of stakeholders. And so, yeah, engage with ACCR market forces and other civil society groups and really learn a lot from those engagements and from the people in those organisations. And I think, you know, it's really important to remember that these organisations are staffed by incredibly intelligent people. I mean, these people could equally have the capability to work inside a company. They choose not to. So there are some really, really clever people at these organisations applying their minds to some of the challenges facing us globally and I think it's really important to respectfully listen and engage with them and you won't always agree with everything but it's just I think going through that process of consultation and open engagement is really really fundamental. Thank you so much Talia that was an absolute pleasure. Look thank you so much Brendan for taking the time to speak with me it's been really nice to sit down and have a chat about some of these issues there's so much more we could talk about. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Alliance Advisors, please visit us at our website, allianceadvisors.com, or you can find us on LinkedIn or Twitter.